If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14. We've been here in chapter 14 for a couple of weeks now. We're going to close out this chapter today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. I want to open, a, open our message this morning with a story, a uh, really fascinating story, a true story about uh, one of the greatest uh, naval tragedies in all of history. It was the ill-fated expedition of Sir John Franklin uh, carried out by the British Royal Navy in 1845. Uh, Annie Dillard in her essay, Expedition to the Pole, uh, describes this ill-fated uh, venture where these Royal Navy officers set out on this journey uh, with preparations more accustomed to the officers' clubs that they were used to in London than the harsh conditions that they were going to face in the Arctic. Let me read this for you. In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138, 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two three-masted ships. Each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two or three years voyage. Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, sterling silver flatware. The silver was of ornate Victorian design. Engraved on the handles were the individual officers' initials and family crests. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the standard uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. The ship set out amidst enormous glory and fanfare. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two ships in Lancaster Sound. He reported back to England on the high spirits of the officers and men. He was the last European to see any of them alive. Years later, civilization learned that many groups of Inuit Eskimos had happened upon scenes of various still-living or dead members of the Franklin Expedition. Some had glimpsed, for instance, men pushing and pulling a wooden boat across the ice. Some had found at a place called Starvation Cove this boat, or a similar one, and the remains of 35 men who had been dragging it. At Terror Bay, the Inuit found a tent on the ice, and in it, 30 bodies. At Simpson Strait, some Inuit had seen a very odd sight, the pack ice pierced by three masts of a protruding wooden ship. For 20 years... Search parties recovered skeletons from all over the frozen sea. Accompanying one clump of frozen bodies were place settings of sterling silver flatware engraved with officers' initials and family crests. Another search party found two skeletons in a boat on a sledge. They had hauled the boat 65 miles. With the two skeletons were some chocolate, some guns, some tea, and a great deal of table silverware. Many miles south of these two was another skeleton alone. This was a frozen officer. The skeleton was in uniform, trousers and jacket of fine blue cloth edged with silk braid. Over this uniform, the dead officer had worn his blue sport coat with black silk neckerchief. That was the Franklin Expedition. Sir John Franklin and 138 men perished because they failed to fully recognize the challenge in front of them. They underestimated the cost, they ignorant, ignorantly imagined a pleasure cruise, and they exchanged the necessities of their journey for luxuries. And they all went to their deaths because of it. 
Now, I share this story with us this morning because today we are going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus did for his followers what Sir John Franklin failed to do for his. You see, friends, Jesus doesn't want followers who are ignorant of the cost of following him. Jesus wants followers who understand what the journey of discipleship entails. He's looking for believers who are prepared for the rigors of walking with him. He wants men and women who have fully counted the cost and are committed to living as kingdom ambassadors. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage, Luke chapter 14, 25 through 35. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. This is a difficult passage. It's a challenging passage. This is one of those gut check type passages where Jesus is going to share some words that might convict some of us here today. This is not a seeker-sensitive type of a message here this morning. Okay, but, but because we teach the whole counsel of God's word here at Lakes Free, sometimes we deal with the hard passages just like we do with the more joyful, easy passages. But I think what we're going to find today is even in the challenging message the Lord presents to us, we're going to be blessed and encouraged. So let's read this passage together, Luke chapter 14, 25 through 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now we need to set the scene of this teaching before we can fully understand the power of what Jesus is communicating here. Luke tells us that Jesus has set out once again on his journey to Jerusalem. If you recall the section that we're in in the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 9, Jesus had set out on his journey for Jerusalem. He was headed towards Calvary, headed to the cross, where he would ultimately lay down his life for our sins. But along this journey, Jesus provided for us many of his most powerful teachings. And this was one of those scenes where Jesus is on his way and the large crowds are following Jesus. Now, now you got to imagine, I mean, of course you're going to be following this guy. I mean, he's the miracle worker, right? And so all these guys, they're following Jesus, wanting to hear his latest teaching, wanting to see his latest, greatest miracle, maybe get a free meal out of it, you know, feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus has these large crowds following along. But Jesus takes this opportunity to share this challenging word with these crowds. Because here's what we need to understand, friends. Jesus is not interested in groupies. 
All right? He's not looking for people who put on the Jesus t-shirt and show up for the concert and, and you know, the rest of their lives to just kind of do their own thing. He doesn't want groupies. He's looking for faithful, committed, sold-out followers of the Take Up Your Cross tour. And so Jesus is going to basically thin out the crowd by encouraging people to count the cost of what it really means to be a disciple, to be a follower of his. What we're going to see this morning is Jesus is going to highlight the truth that to be a true disciple requires that we make him our top priority in life. Jesus needs to be number one. In our passage today, Jesus makes this point by highlighting three demands that come with the cost of discipleship. The first of these demands that we see Jesus make is in verse 26, where Jesus demands your love. Jesus demands your love. Now, here in verse 26, Jesus gets right to the point, and he doesn't pull any punches, friends. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must hate their father, their mother, their wife, their children, their brothers and sisters. Wow. That's a challenging statement by Jesus. Now, what are we to make of this statement, friends? I mean, I mean isn't this Jesus... The same guy who told us that we are to, you know, honor our father and mother? Isn't this the same Jesus who told us to, to love one another as I have loved you or love your neighbor as yourself or even love your enemies and bless those who persecute? Jesus, what are you doing here, man? Hate my wife? Hate my children? Hate my brother? Jesus, is this the same guy here or did somebody sneak in and co-opt the message. See, what we need to understand here this morning is the term hate that Jesus uses here is really an ancient Hebraism. And what that means is it's, a, it's an ancient Hebrew figure of speech. You see, in the, in the Hebrew language, to speak of hating somebody, you, you could speak in terms of hatred, in terms of like a malicious hatred, like we often use the term today. Or you could talk about hatred in terms of preference to give a preference to one over another. That was a common way to describe a preference as, as to hate one over the other. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, we read of, of Jacob, and, and Jacob had two wives. He loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Now, now, Jacob didn't actually hate Leah. He just gave preference to Rachel over Leah. And so that was an ancient figure of speech that the Hebrew language would use. When we go to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that, that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Friends, God didn't hate Esau. God loves all people. But God was saying there that he had made a preference. He had chosen Jacob over Esau. So what we need to understand here when we look at this verse is what we really are dealing with here is a comparative statement. Jesus isn't saying that we should hate our family with an emotional or malicious hatred, but rather if we must compare or if we're forced to choose, Jesus must come out on top every time. We must love Jesus more than anyone else. See, friends, Jesus wants to be your first loyalty. He wants to be your first love. All other relationships must take second place to Jesus. I remember when I was a young boy, my, my father, I've shared stories about my dad. He was a traveling apologist and evangelist. And he was on the road about 50% of the time. 
He'd be speaking in churches, schools, seminaries, working with mission organizations around the world. He'd be home for a week, gone for a week, be gone for three weeks, home for a couple weeks. And, and, you know, as a young boy, there were times where I really missed my dad when he was away from home. I remember one evening before my dad was to depart on a three-week missions trip over to Asia. I remember as a young boy, I was in fifth grade, and I just remember crying to my dad as he tucked me into bed that night. Just asking him, Dad, why do you got to go again? And I remember my dad telling me, Jason, I love you. Nothing's ever going to change my love for you. But he said, Jason, in our family, Jesus is our top priority. And this is the calling that Jesus has given our family, is to serve him in this ministry. And so, Jason, don't ever doubt my love for you. But Jason, Jesus has called me to go, and I'm going to honor Jesus. And he said, you know what? You might not understand this today, but one day I'm going to pray that you understand it to the point where you love Jesus more than anyone else as well. You know, that's a really, that's a hard thing for a young boy to understand. But you know something, friends? Because I knew Jesus was my dad's top priority, I grew up never knowing fear when it came to my father. I never feared my dad walking out on our family. I never feared my dad abusing my mom. I never feared my dad not loving me or forgiving me. See, friends, the paradox in Jesus' call to hate all others in our lives is that in loving Jesus above all others, we actually end up loving others more. That's the amazing thing about it. Nobody loves like a radical disciple of Jesus. Because when Jesus is your all, his priorities become your priorities. And what are Jesus' priorities? Jesus' priorities are people. He loves people. He cares about people. And so, of course, the person who is the radical, sold-out, committed follower of Jesus, they're just naturally going to love people because they love Jesus and Jesus loves people. Let me ask you this question this morning. Is Jesus your greatest love today? Do you hate all others for his sake? Would you choose Jesus over your wife or your kids or your boyfriend? See, if you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus, Jesus demands your undivided love. The second teaching Jesus gives us in, this, in our passage today, not only does he demand our undivided love, but he demands your very life. He demands your life. Verse 27, Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. Now friends, understand this. Nobody in Jesus' day would have misunderstood what Jesus was calling for here. In the first century Israel, the cross was a symbol of shame, disgrace, and death. See, the Roman Empire would force those who were condemned to death to carry their own cross to the place of their execution. It was the ultimate act of humiliation in the first century. And so when Jesus told his followers in our passage this morning, anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, everyone who heard that statement clearly understood that Jesus was calling them to lay down their reputation, their honor, even their very lives for his sake. 
What a challenging call. Would you be willing to lay down your life for Jesus? Would you give Jesus your comforts, your dreams, or even your very life if he were to ask for it? I mentioned earlier this morning our apologetics conference coming up. Two of our speakers, close friends of mine, Kevin and Julia Garrett. I met Kevin and Julia in 2009 when my dad and brother and I were teaching for Youth with a Mission on the border of North Korea and Dandong, China. Kevin and Julia spent 30 years in Dandong, China ministering. They had an incredible ministry to North Korean refugees who had escaped across the border to China. They, at great risk, ministered to these people against the wishes of the Chinese government, obviously against the wishes of the North Korean government. But for 30 years there, they served on the front lines of one of the most dangerous places in the world. They raised five children there, their home was there, their business was there, everything was there. Two years ago, the Chinese government accused Kevin and Julia of espionage, of spying on behalf of the Canadian government. One night when they were out having dinner, the secret police rushed in, grabbed Kevin and Julia, put them into separate cars, and they didn't see each other again for two years. They were both whisked away to secret Chinese prisons where they spent two years of their lives in solitary confinement, isolation from everyone in their life, undergoing brutal Chinese interrogation, trying to get them to admit that they were spies for Canada. Kevin and Julie are going to be with us in February. They're going to share their incredible story. Friends, I'll tell you, it's worth the price of admission alone to the conference. Story of faithfulness, story of God's grace and faithfulness in their lives through that period, story of their miraculous release from prison. But I'll tell you something, they lost everything. They lost their home all their money, all their possessions, their ministry in China, everything that they had invested in for 30 years is gone today, gone. They have nothing. You know, the life of a disciple is a life of perpetual dying, dying to self. So as I follow Jesus over time, there's less of me and more of him. Jesus demands our very lives. But the thing about it is, is when we follow Jesus, when we give it all to him, we get so much more in return. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. See, the Apostle Paul gave everything for the sake of the gospel. He gave up everything for the sake of Jesus. But you know what he said? He said, you know what? It was all garbage. It was all garbage compared to Jesus. See, you're never going to regret laying it all on the line for Jesus because what you get in return is worth so much more. But the thing about that, friends, is you never really fully understand that until you actually lay it at the feet of Jesus. And then you come to see the incredible blessing of it. You know, we might not face the same kinds of persecutions that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ face around the world. But the disciple of Jesus is one who has counted that cost. 
and they are willing to give their very lives for the sake of Jesus. How about you, friends? The third demand that we find in our passage today, Jesus demands our love, he demands our lives, he demands, thirdly, our whole lot. Jesus demands everything. He wants it all, friends. And to get this point across, Jesus uses two illustrations. The first is that of a man building a watchtower. The second, that of a king preparing for war. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Friends, the point of these stories here is obvious. Jesus is once again calling us to count the cost before committing to him. He's basically saying, look, if you're only going to go halfway, don't even bother starting. Because I'm not looking for disciples who are only willing to go halfway. I'm looking for disciples who are willing to lay it all on the line for my sake. And the battle Jesus is calling us to, friends, the spiritual warfare he's calling us to as we advance the gospel in this dark world, it's not a battle to be taken lightly. Jesus is saying, count the cost. And he makes it clear in verse 33 that being his disciple will cost you everything you have. Your whole lot. See, Jesus demands you give him everything. Whether your everything is a little or a lot, understand this, friend, God has claim on all areas of your life. You're just squatting on his territory. It all belongs to Jesus. Now, God doesn't always ask the same of all of us, but the question is, are we willing to give him our all if he should ask? You know, I think of our friends Nathan and Christina Pino. Many of you know the Pino family. You know, three years ago, they were sitting out here just like any of you, just average, ordinary, white, middle-class, suburban family. They had jobs, they had kids going to school, and, you know, they had their own dreams, their own ambitions. But you know what? Three years ago, they felt God was calling them to give up everything to go serve as missionaries in the jungle of Panama. They, I'm telling you, they weren't anything special. I mean, they were like, they're just normal people, like the stalls sitting right there. Pinos were right there three years ago, doing their thing. Loving Jesus, serving in the church, going to work on Monday through Friday. But you know what? Like, Going to the jungles of Panama wasn't even on their radar. But one day Jesus came knocking. And Jesus said, I want you to give it all up for me. I want you to sell your house. I want you to sell your cars. I want you to take your boys and move down to Panama. I want you to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. Man, that's a challenging thing to think about. Have you counted that cost? If Jesus were to come knocking on your door, say, I want you to give up everything. I want you to follow me. It, it, it might mean your dreams. It might mean your ambitions. It might mean your career. Uh, but I'm asking you to follow me. See, the true disciple of Jesus is the one who has counted that cost and has made the commitment to do it if God calls. 
See, what you need to understand here this morning, friends, Jesus doesn't want to go, us going into this discipleship thing with eyes closed. He wants our eyes wide open to what he's calling us to. And you've got to understand, none of us here can know for sure what God might ask of us. But he can ask us for anything. And he might ask us for everything. So are you ready for that? Have you counted that cost? Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, Jason, what right does Jesus have to demand so much of us? Who does he think he is? Friends, Jesus has every right in the universe. When you understand who Jesus is, Jesus is our creator. He's our sustainer. In him we live, move, and have our being. He's our provider. My God has supplied all my needs. He's our savior. He's our motivator. He empowers us with the Holy Spirit. He's our liberator. One day he's going to defeat sin and death for all time. He's the terminator. Friends, long before Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesus said, I'll be back. (laughs) And when he comes back, he's going to throw the devil and his minions into hell for all of eternity. See, friends, what right does Jesus have to demand our all? He has every right because he is our all. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we ever will be, it's all because of Jesus. And how silly, how foolish to give Jesus anything less than our all. See, friends, when you understand who Jesus is and you surrender all to him, you come to find that you've really lost nothing, but you've gained everything. But again, you won't realize this until you lay it all at the feet of Jesus. And this leads us to the final illustration in our passage today. In verse 35, Jesus declares, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You see, as Jesus shares in this concluding illustration, when you've made the commitment to put him first, when you've totally sold out for Jesus, your life is going to be characterized by zest. You're going to be known as a salty Christian. And when you think about that, what a great metaphor for for the, the life of a person living faithfully as a follower of Jesus. You know, when you think about salt, what does salt do? Salt is a preservative. It prevents decay. And and in the same way, the salty Christian has a preserving influence in our culture as we point the world to a better way of living, a way of following Jesus and his righteousness and the hope and the joy and the satisfaction that comes from walking in the ways of God. Salt also acts as an antiseptic. It, It cleanses and heals I remember as a kid, I grew up in the Philippines for a couple of years when my folks were missionaries there. In the Philippines, they, they take the boys when they're 12 years old and they circumcise them. And they do it down on the beach and then they have them run into the ocean. Now that'll wake you up if you know what I'm saying, you know. But why do they do that? They do that because that salt water actually helps heal the wound. It cleanses it. It heals it. And in the same way, friends, a salty Christian is one who comes alongside the brokenhearted and the downtrodden and those who are in despair. The salty Christian is one who who points people to the life and hope and joy that's found in Jesus. And, And salt is also a seasoning. It provides flavor. 
It provides zest. And, and I'll tell you something, there's nothing like a salty Christian who goes out into the world and makes an impact in people's lives. I mean, if you're a salty Christian, like people aren't going to be able to help but notice it. I mean, they're, they're going to bump into Matt Struve on the street tomorrow and he's going to be like flaking salt all off of them and they're going to be like, something's different about that guy, right? What's different about him? He's, he's so salty. It's because of Jesus. When we commit to following Jesus and we give Jesus our all, like the world can't help but notice that. And, and it makes people thirsty, right? People want that for themselves. I want some of that Jesus stuff you got. See, see, this is what Jesus is calling us to. But sadly, friends, the opposite is also true. Because for the Christian who allows herself to be deluded by the influences of the world, she loses her zest and no longer makes the impact God desires for her. She becomes like the person we talked about a few weeks ago when we looked at 2 Peter 1 verse 8. A person who is ineffective and unproductive in her faith. How sad. What a loss. So this morning, I want to ask you the question, what kind of follower of Jesus do you want to be? You know, do you want to be a groupie or do you want to be one of the sold out, committed, take up your cross with tour roadies? You know what I'm saying? You know, do you want to be a salty Christian? Or you just want to be kind of a bland, sort of do my thing, Jesus on the side kind of a Christian? Man, I, I tell you something. I think God is going to do some incredible things through this church if we individually and collectively commit to selling all out for Jesus. If we will make the commitment to say, you know what, Jesus, you are number one above everything. I mean, I love my wife, but Jesus, you're number one. And I love my kids, but Jesus, you're number one. And Jesus, I love this church, but you know what? I will walk away from it in a heartbeat if you call me to because Jesus, you're number one. And I tell you some friends, if we collectively embrace that kind of an attitude and a commitment, God is going to honor that. He is going to bless that. And we are going to like pour salt out of these doors throughout the course of the week. And the whole community and the whole world is going to say, what is going on at Lakes Free? Because those people are just so salty. God is doing something powerful in that place. Friends, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of influence I want to have in this world. And I would be willing to bet we all want that same kind of influence. Because you know what? Who wants to lead a bland, boring life? Nobody does. I want to count the cost. I want to say, Jesus, you know what? I'm willing to lay it all on the line for you. What do you have for me, Jesus? And friends, if that's our heartbeat, if that's the desire of our heart, God's going to do some miraculous things. You with me? You excited? Let's pray about that together this morning. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, these challenging passages are sometimes tough, but at the same time, I think we need this, Jesus. We need these reminders. We need you to kind of poke us and prod us once in a while to, to, to wake us up out of our apathy and to remember what it's all about because it gets so easy to get sucked in by all the things of this world. And, and Jesus, you say you need to be number one. You demand our love, our lives, our whole lot. And, and Jesus, that is going to look different for each and every one of us. But I pray, God, that my friends here this morning, that all of us would make the commitment to count the cost and say, you know what, Jesus, you are worth it. You are worth whatever it might be. I'm willing to give it to you for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. 
And Lord, I pray that this church would be a church full of people who are just so salty, so sold out, so committed to Jesus that, that, that people cannot help but experience and taste the savoring influence in our lives. And they become thirsty themselves wanting to know the Jesus that we know and the Jesus that we love and serve. So God, raise up an army of people here at Lakes Free. Raise up a community of faith that is so salty that the world can't fail but take notice. God, thank you for this passage this morning. We pray your blessings on each and every one of us here. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to remind you this morning as we conclude our service, our elders are going to be at the front of the sanctuary. If any of you has a prayer need, our elders would love to pray with you. And now I leave you with this word from the book of Acts chapter 20. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In Jesus' name, amen.